Jeremiah chapter 2 in your Bibles, please. Self-inflicted sorrow of the self-righteous. Verses 20 through 37, uh, finishing up chapter 2 this evening in Jeremiah 2. Last time we were together in the book of Jeremiah, last week we spent our time considering the patient plea of God toward the nation of Israel. He appealed to his own faithfulness, if you recall, asking effectively, what have I done What have I done wrong that your fathers saw fit to reject me so definitively as Lord? The answer, of course, is that God had done nothing wrong. It was not God who had moved. It was not God who had wandered. It was not God who had strayed. We're jumping directly into a running context this evening. In many ways, I wish I didn't have to cut it off where I did, but um, it was necessary to do so. We'll be kind of doing this for the next couple of weeks as we jump into running context. Recall we are considering the word of the Lord from chapter 2, verse 1. God promised He would yet plead with the nation, calling them to assume a posture of repentance for their sin. Unfortunately, however... Even as Jeremiah holds forth this notable and very generous offer by the Lord unto mercy and forgiveness, God expresses to them his understanding that they're actually not going to accept it. See, we humans have a problem within our nature. And if we feed this element of our nature, it can overwhelm us and ensnare us. As we feed the darkness and quench the light, the darkness starts to feel normal. Though it is but a perversion of the truth. I was talking with Mark a few minutes ago about how dim this building is. We've always had a very dim building, not a lot of light in here. Uh, but it's kind of one of those things that after seven years of ministry is starting to, you know, it gets a little normal. You, you, you realize it's dim, but you don't realize it's dim. Uh, and then you go to some other church and whatnot, and you say, wow, it's really bright in this church. Well, no, it's just really dim in our church, right? The darkness begins to feel normal because it's kind of the way it is, right? It's the same way in our lives that if we live in the darkness, if we assimilate darkness, if we uh, live in a constancy of darkness, then darkness uh, becomes the status quo. And it's almost as if you don't realize anymore what you're missing. You don't realize anymore that the light that was in you is now darker and the darkness just becomes kind of what you expect. As we feed this darkness, we quench the light and the darkness feels normal, though it's a perversion of the truth. Darkness does not just cloud a man's understanding of what he is doing or where he's going. It clouds his understanding of where he is. Such was the case with Israel. Such was their condition in Jeremiah 2. So we pick up in verse 20 this evening, and the Bible says this in verses 20 and 21. For of old time I have broken thy yoke, God speaking to Israel, and burst thy bands, and thou saidst, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot, yet I have planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed, How then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? We begin with an observation of hypocrisy on the part of the nation of Israel. God says that of old time he has broken their yoke and burst their bands. The idea here is that God has freed them from their bondage. Since long ago, God says, I have freed you from your bondage. He freed them from the bondage of, of Egypt. And then if you recall within the Judges, we talk about that cycle of apostasy where they're led into captivity and then they crowd into the Lord and the Lord raises up a judge and the judge delivers them from this uh, this fate, and then they serve him for a few years, and then they, they apostatize again, and we have this cycle over and over and over again of them falling into bondage, God delivering them from that bondage. He says, of old time, I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. God has been faithful to them on any number of occasions, delivering them out of the sorrows and the trials of captivity and destruction. And for this deliverance by God unto them, they would reply, saying, I will not transgress. 
This is kind of like the child who desires something of his parent or desires mercy and says, if you give me mercy, I'll never do it again. I will not transgress. The idea being that in that moment, in that moment, the need for deliverance, everything is so clear, right? God will deliver me. In this case, in the illustration, my parent will deliver me and then I'll just never do that thing again that's going to cause them to need to give me that consequence. And God says, you said the same thing, Israel. You said, as I'm delivering you, breaking the, 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 the bonds of your yoke, I will not transgress. He said, when simultaneously, when upon every high hill and under every green tree, you're wandering playing the harlot. Often they told the Lord, if you will but save us, we will serve thee. And God delivered, this in spite of the fact that they were unfaithful to him. God uses the word harlot to describe their spiritual state. This is not uncommon. We see it all the way in the book of Revelation, right? The idea of, of causing the people to commit fornication is not just actual physical fornication, sexual sin, but also has this connotation of spiritual fornication, of spiritual unfaithfulness. They went after anything and everything they could find and called it God and worshipped and served it. They were inconstant though God had delivered them. And this is the contrast that God is painting here. He says that he planted them a noble vine and a holy, right seed. He'd placed them in the land. He'd given them his law. He promised them every benefit if they would obey it. They were made, he, he describes them to a beautiful vine, a right seed, having all of the opportunities. This is, this is that plant that you, you, you get the good seeds and you put them in the good soil and that soil has no weeds and you fertilize it and you take care of it and, and uh, it has every advantage. It has every opportunity at its disposal. How then, God says, have you turned into such a degenerate plant in a strange vine? How is it that I planted, as we might see in a, a, another portion of Scripture, how is it that I planted grapes in wonderful soil and it came up wild grapes? And it came up that which, which was not what it should have been. Um, if, the, the, this, this is the idea here, that, that you came up and you were not what, what you ought to be. How could something with every opportunity and every advantage so willingly throw it all away? Such a question has often gone through the mind of the believer. How is it possible that the nation of Israel could have so many promises and reject them so utterly? At least that's often gone through my mind. As you read the Old Testament, you can't help but roll your eyes, right? As you read and just say, ah, God's promised them. If they just do right, why can't they just do it? And then you think about your own life and things start to take a little bit of perspective, right? God continues in verses 22 and 23. For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord. How canst thou say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after Balaam? See thy way in the valley? Know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary traversing her ways. The nation was rebellious and idolatrous, but sought to cover their sins with the concessions of God's law. They would keep the Sabbath. They would do their offerings, all the while returning to the house full of idols and thinking they were hiding it from the Lord. God likens them to having washed with nitre and with soap. Nitre is a substance used as a cleansing agent in early times. Soap, of course, was also a cleansing agent. Both of these removed the filth of the flesh. It cleaned the exterior of the man. God says, you will get yourself all cleaned up on the outside and you will come before me, but you will have your idols and you'll go back to your idols as if I don't know. This is kind of like that person who comes to church on Sunday and they get washed up and they get cleaned up and they come to church and they put on their smiley face and they look all right. And then they go home to all of their idols or they go home to all of their sins and, and as long and, and they, they, they go home to their life, which has nothing to do with God and has no interest in God. And they just dress up for God on Sunday. This is that idea. As if somehow cleaning our exterior, as if somehow presenting ourselves before God in a way that in no way actually reflects our heart is fooling Him. So God says you've cleaned yourself up, but your iniquity is still marked. You can't clean out 
this iniquity. You can't just change your clothes and your iniquity goes away. You can't just put on some perfume and I, I, I no longer smell the stench of your idolatry. They sought to use external cleansers to cover their idolatry, but they persisted in sin. And God is letting them know that they cannot fool him. They cannot manipulate him simply through external changes. So God asks them, how can you say I'm not polluted, that I've not gone after Balaam? Balaam is the plural of the false god Baal, which was different depending on the city and region. Uh, Balaam seems to actually be a god in and of himself as we, as we look in the scriptures, people serving Balaam. But the word Baal is simply a, a word for God, and Balaam uh, is the gods, right? So it could have been any number of gods, although several of them have different names throughout. So Balaam himself kind of took on an entity of his own. Either way, they were serving false gods. The Lord likely does not have a specific false god in mind here, because what have we seen throughout Jeremiah already? They're going from God to God to God to God to God, right? They're going all over the place. They're looking for anyone and everyone uh, at any given time to worship. And every, every tree, every valley, every high place, every everything, they're going after it. This is that picture of the harlot, right? And we're going to see this picture continue, not just in verse 23 here, but in verse 25, I mean 24 as well. So God calls them to wake up from their own, uh, from, from this sleep and to wake up to see their own sinfulness. And he uses two parallel illustrations to express this sinfulness. We'll see one here in verse 24, 23, and then we'll see the other in verse 24, excuse me. First, he describes them as a swift dromedary. This is a female camel. So a, a swift dromedary, a female camel, traversing her ways, twisting her ways, seeking a mate driven only by her animal instinct to procreate. We'll see the second illustration and then we'll put them together. Verse 24, a wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure. In her occasion, who can turn her away? All they that seek her will not, will not weary themselves. In her month, they shall find her. So the second picture is of a wild female donkey sniffing at the wind to follow the scent, looking for a male, again, as a means by which to mate with them, to procreate. Both pictured, the picture behind both of these illustrations is animals during mating season. And if you've ever seen a female animal in heat, you know that in those times, animals revert to their more base instincts. Regardless of training, Animals, males and females in this time must often be separated because they revert to these base brute instincts. There's a brutishness, regardless of training, that overtakes animals as their natural instinct to procreate overwhelms them. So this is the idea of a, a wild ass in her occasion here. God asks in her occasion, when she's in heat, when she's seeking a male, who can turn her away from these brutish passions? You don't have to weary yourself to find her. Just go find the males. God describes the nation this way. It's quite a vivid picture. That they're like animals pursuing the very basest lusts of their sinful nature. Not that God does not have the power to resist men, but they are, in a manner of speaking, unstoppable. God's not going to override their will here. And all of the natural strategies that he would use to divert their sinfulness, the natural judgments that came through their disobedience to the law, the, the giving of mercy when they would cry out for mercy, saying, I will not offend, I will not transgress, all of the loving kindness coupled with all of the, the, the heavy-handed chastening, None of it has diverted them from their sinfulness. They're like these wild beasts pursuing their basest nature. No matter what God does, they are determined to disobey. That's the idea here. Continuing in verse 25. He says, Withhold thy foot from being unshod, and thy throat from thirst. But thou saidst, There is no hope, no, for I have loved strangers, and after them will I go. The Lord exhorts them in this idea, withhold your foot from being unshod, put shoes on your feet. And then the idea, withhold your throat from thirst. Basically, the idea here is, look, control yourself a little bit. Learn to control 
your basest nature. Learn to control that drive, that sinful drive in you. Control yourself. And notice their response. No, they say. No, I've, I've loved strangers. I love this stuff. I want this stuff. I want it. And so I'm going to go after it. This is a heart of rebellion and a deep determination unto sin. Their heart is fixed on sin, and after sin they will go. God says, look, back off. Control yourself a little bit. They say no. Verses 26 and 27. God says, as a thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets saying to a stalk, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and, uh, and save us. So the idea of the thief being, not ashamed, or being ashamed and Israel being ashamed in these instances is not that a thief, when he is found, feels shame, and Israel feels shame. Rather, a thief, when he is found, is shamed. So in other words, the idea is not that the thief gets caught and he says, now I'm ashamed of what I did. Because Israel here is not ashamed, right? And God is comparing that. The word in the Hebrew actually means to be shamed. A criminal, when caught, is shamed. He is now known as a criminal. It's public record. They've now got the mugshot. You Google their name, there's their mugshot, right? This idea. The thief lives a life of anonymity. This is a part of what it means to be a thief. Part of what it means to be a criminal, a part of that is anonymity. When that anonymity is ruined, in society now, that person is stigmatized. His evil is made known to all. He is shamed. In the very same way, the nation of Israel, God says, has been exposed. They are living in shame shamed in her sin. And God lists their leaders, the most noble and dignified in the land, the kings, the princes, the priests, the prophets. And in all cases, they are shaming themselves through worshiping things that are worthy of no worship, that are worthy of no honor, calling the stalks, that would be the plants, right? Calling plants their fathers, saying to the stones, you created me turning their backs on the true and living God instead of their faces to the true and living God. Rather than turning their faces to Him as they ought, they turn their backs to Him. And even more importantly, as the Lord desires, they are not seeking Him until, of course, they need Him. Until they really need something, right? See, for all this, they are fully aware of the deceit in which they live. They fooled themselves, but it's there. Because when things truly get difficult, they know where to turn. They don't turn to the stalk. They don't turn to the stone, the stalk that is their father, the stone that created them. When things really get down, when, when they really need help, they know where to turn. They turn to the Lord. And in the day of trouble, they say, Arise, Lord, and save us. In fair weather fashion, they run to the true power when things need to get done. And when things are fine, they return to their base desires and they find gods that will confirm them in their lusts so that they can pursue their lusts and worship at the same time. In response to this, God says in verse 28, But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise if they can save thee in time of trouble, for according to the number of thy cities are thy gods. O Judah. So God's response is simple. You cry out to me in the day of trouble and you say, save us. And I say back to you, well, where are those gods that you've been worshiping? Where's the stock? Why doesn't he get out of the ground and save you? Where's the stone? Why doesn't he roll over and save you? In the day of trouble, why don't you call out to them? It's one of the most interesting elements of human nature that in times of true trial and difficulty, our, hypo our hypocrisies and our inconsistencies tend to bubble right up to the surface, don't they? And for all that we say we believe something, it really doesn't, doesn't stick when it comes down to us. When it comes down to us. 
for all that people have all of this redistributionist mentality that we need to redistribute from the rich to give to the poor, when it's time for their money to be redistributed, something changes in their attitude, doesn't it? For all of this mentality of abortion, it's just a fetus, it's just a fetus, it's just a fetus. When one of these people has a child, they're still calling it a baby before it's born. Our hypocrisies and our inconsistencies tend to bubble up right to the surface when the rubber meets the road. There's this old saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? When a man truly begins to contemplate the brevity and the frailty of his existence, these silly notions that rocks and trees or aliens or the government or we ourselves can save ourselves becomes exposed. And all of a sudden we realize that our, all of our theories and all of our presuppositions, the things that we stood upon in order to avoid the accountability of Almighty God, uh, have no legs to stand on. In fact, quite often, as was the case with Israel... This, however, does not mean that people will yield to this truth. Quite often, when our theories break down, the incapacity of our own devices becomes evident. Rather than people humbling themselves before Almighty God and acknowledging Him, they instead harden themselves against the Lord and rebel all the more. And this is what happened with Israel. So they said within themselves, there is no hope. We will continue as we have before. God tells them, flee to those gods then and see if they can save thee in times of trouble. According to the number of cities that you have in Judah, so are the number of your gods. They had so many of them. Surely one of them is worthy of the devotion that the nation had given to them. Of course, God says this somewhat sarcastically, and if you've not uh, ever noticed this in your reading of the prophets and even Jesus' teachings, God can be quite sarcastic. The truth is, these are no gods. These are no gods. They're avatars of man's rebellion. That's what they are. These false gods that people flee to. These false premises that people flee to, to try to to deny the truths of the living word. What they are is they are physical manifestations of their rebellious hearts. There is a physical avatar of their rebellious hearts. They are the attempt of man to cast off God, to make himself God, to pursue his own desires without the guilt and shame that come from Rejecting the universe's creator. To this then God asks in verses 29 and 30. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Why plead with me? You've rejected me, God asks. You have transgressed against me. Why are you pleading with me? Why call out to a God that you have forsaken? What happened to all those other gods? Can you see the inconsistency? The inconsistency in their hearts that they cry out to God in the time of need. Look for this. You'll see it all around you. You'll see these inconsistencies all around you. And when you see these inconsistencies, when you see people that stand upon these theories and stand upon these ideas that all would would raise other things to the level of God, most usually themselves, sometimes government, sometimes the planet or whatever it might be, and you see these things and you see what it leads them to do, look for the times where where the rubber meets the road and what you'll find is deep inconsistency. You will find it. Because at the end of the day, they may may flee to their gods in order to run from their conscience. They may flee to their gods in order to escape the, the moral expectations of Almighty God, but it just does not hold water when the rubber meets the road. They're all simply manifestations of man's attempts at rebellion. God then muses on the futility of his efforts to correct them here. 
He says that he's smitten their children in vain. They never even saw their correction as correction. They never saw their chastening as chastening. Instead, when God sent the prophets to correct them, what did they do? They killed them. They beat them. They destroyed them. He said, like a destroying lion, your own sword has devoured the very people I sent to call you back to me. You didn't recognize it. You ignored it. You hated it. You despised it. So the Lord says in verses 31 and 32, O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say my people, we are lords. We will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me without number. So the Lord asks, Will this generation, O generation, this generation, the generation that Jeremiah is pleading with, will this generation be any different? Will this generation identify the light of God's word and flee to the light rather than away from the light? God says, have I been a wilderness to you? Has this generation ever, has any generation, God would ask, ever fled to the Lord and found their hope in God left wanting? And the idea being that in a wilderness they don't have what they need, that they're out, that they're parched, that there's no water. Have I ever been a wilderness to you? Has any who have rested in God, like those in a wilderness, been left hungry or thirsty or lacking necessity? God says, testify against me if any of you can that I have been a wilderness to you, that you have fled unto me and you have not found in me everything that you need. Then why would it be that God's people in such a state would demand their own lordship? Why can God's people not be content with God's benevolent leadership? Why must they demand to be their own masters when God, as their loving master, has never failed them? Why should I need to be my own master if my master has taken care of me so well? How should I be discontent if the Lord has never left me wanting? So then God asks, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Does a woman reject and forsake the very thing that, that establishes her beauty? Does a woman simply pass the adornments of her beauty out of her mind? No. Within this here. But the thing which established the very beauty of Judah and Jerusalem, the very thing that made Judah beautiful, the very essence of her strength and her pride and her dignity, they forsook. Verses 33 and 34. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love, he asks? Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. God contrasts the beauty that they are adorned in as they follow the Lord. The Lord is their covering. The Lord is their beauty. The Lord is their ornaments. The Lord is their adornments. And they have forsaken their adornments. And he contrasts that with their own trimmings, right? The, 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 the way that they've dressed themselves. It's kind of like the difference when you get like a, a three, four or five-year-old girl, like my, my, my daughters, when, when sometimes still, they're getting better, but when they attempt to dress themselves, when mama puts out something for them in the morning, that would be very becoming on them. And then they come out and they've got stripes here and polka dots down there and colors going all over the place. And it makes you dizzy just to look at them. Have you forsaken your adornments for your own trimmings? So God describes their own trimmings here. He says you're trimming yourself in a way to seek love. Whereas the Lord had clothed them in beauty and purity and holiness... They put on the trappings of a harlot. They trimmed themselves for an entirely different purpose. Realize that we dress for certain purposes, right? And the way we dress kind of has a way of telling people what we're dressing for. The idea of dress for success, right? Uh, this is why they tell you to dress up when you go into an interview. If you go to an interview in your pajamas, uh, there's a perception that you're giving off about yourself, 
as opposed to if you put on men the tie and, and, and the slacks and you, you go in clean shaven and, and with your hair cut and those sorts of things. He says, you have put off the adornments that would lend itself to beauty and holiness and you have instead put on the trappings of a harlot. You have gone seeking idolatry and fornication and you have dressed in such a way as to attract fornication and idolatry. Like a young lady whose beauty is tainted by her lack of virtue, written on her face, clothed on her body, so too Judah was dressed to allure evil to herself. Judah was seeking fornication and uncleanness. And the guilty of idolatry had devoured the lives of the innocents. Their sin had not only clothed them in shame, but God says that their idolatry and their fornication had caused them to kill the innocents and that their blood, which they sought to, to, to hide, did not even take a secret search. It was all over them. The idea being they're clothed in these harlotry clothing, right? The, the, the clothing that would seek to attract for all the wrong reasons. And then he says, and it's filled with blood, the blood of the innocents. This would be relating again to the many children who had been killed in their idolatrous practice of sacrificing their firstborn children on the altar to Molech, of killing their children on the altar. God says that they're clothed in blood. The final phrase, he says, I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these not only did they do these things, but God didn't have to go digging to find their sin. God didn't have to use his omniscience and his omnipresence to find them committing these sins in the secret recesses of their house or in the dark of the night. They went out into every hill and every valley and they killed their children and they sacrificed to idols. Their blood was spread all over the place. They lived openly in their sin. They openly shed innocent blood, unashamed of their shame, untroubled by their evil. This is how God describes the land. And the worst part about this is that the nation doesn't even see it. The people don't even see it. Verse 35. Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee because thou sayest, I have not sinned. In a stroke of tremendous irony, God says that in their hearts, they were convinced that God will turn his wrath away from them because they're innocent. Here God says, you're dressed as a harlot with blood all over you, and you're walking around saying, surely I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And, and, and no one will know otherwise. They, they don't even realize what they're doing. They know it, but, they, but they're blind. Even as Jeremiah spoke these words, the people were convincing themselves that they were actually good people, that maybe this message was for everyone else, but it most certainly wasn't for them. God knows my heart. They mean well. So God, again, in an act of continued loving kindness and patience, determines to plead with them, to call them to see that they have sinned, that they, even they, are Guilty, For indeed, until we know our sin, until we understand the problem, we will never desire nor will we ever seek a solution. Our text tonight finishes in verses 37 and th uh, 36 and 37. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy ways? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou wast ashamed of, of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him, and thine hands upon thine head, for the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. In light of all that God has said and all that God has done, he asks in almost a confused tone, why have you tried so hard to reject my way? To understand this, we need to understand that for much of the latter days of Israel, one of the manifestations of their forsaking of the Lord was that they were trusting the power of other nations to protect them rather than the power of God. At this time in history, their safety net was still Assyria. Their Assyria was the nation where when other nations would rise against them, they would, they would uh, 
league with Syria and they'd say, Syria, Syria, we'll pay you this much money or we'll give you these many cities or we'll be your servants to this or we'll pay you tribute or whatever it might be if you will protect us. If we can rest under the umbrella of your protection. It's kind of like the UN today, right? All these people are in it so that America can protect them because America is paying so much of the cost of the UN. That's the idea is that they're joining except they're not giving America anything in return. In this time, of course, they gave the nation something in return to protect them. And that's kind of the idea. The idea is that we will give you something and then we are then able to have the, the privilege of your military protection and whatever the case may be. So at this time, Assyria is their safety net. Later, it would be uh, Egypt. But God calls Assyria their shame. In the same way, the same word, ashamed here, that, that um, thou shalt be ashamed of Egypt or shamed in Egypt in the same way you are shamed in Assyria. He says that Assyria is their shame. They will find no satisfaction in the protection of pagan governments for them. And God looks forward and he says, in the not so distant future, Egypt will be the same way. You will flee to Egypt for your protection and you, they will be your shame as well. They will not be able to deliver you. God tells them he's rejected their confidences. Their confidences are Assyria and Egypt. These are the confidences that they have placed themselves in. Rather than having confidence in God, they're placing their confidence in these other nations. And God says, I have rejected your attempt to be protected by them. He's rejected the premise that they will put their confidence in pagan gods and, or pagan nations rather than the Lord. And their attempts at security will be to their loss. Their attempts at prosperity will abound to their poverty. That's where we end our text this evening. I'm sorry, it's not a very happy text. But I would like to apply in several ways this evening. Point number one is we apply, and there's quite a bit to say in our application this evening. First question, we scoff at the futility of idolatry. But are we doing it too? It's one of those rather characteristic things in our time and in our age that, as I mentioned, when we read about people worshiping rocks, we read about people worshiping trees, we roll our eyes, perhaps scoff at the absurdity of the idea, although it's coming back into vogue, right? I mean, people are chaining themselves to trees so that they don't get cut down and whatnot. But idolatry comes in all shapes and sizes, and it's not just bowing down to a rock or to a tree. Whether it looks entirely pagan or it looks modern or even looks religious, idolatry comes in all sorts of forms. An idol, as the Bible defines it, is simply something that we place higher in value, favor, or deference than we do to God. Something else that we are putting our trust in. Something else that we worship. Something else that we bend ourselves in order to please or pacify or appease. That we wrap our lives around. Common idols in our culture today. Government, seeking the protection, favor, and provision from the powers that be. Money, trusting money is the end all of happiness. Giving up other things in order to pursue money, provision, and protection. Your feelings, this is a big one. Believing that how you feel is more important than anything else. That the only thing that matters is your feelings. And to deny your feelings is to wrong yourself. And for someone else to deny your feelings is to be evil. How dare you not deny, how dare you not regard my feelings? How dare you offend me? Right? There's an idol there. It's themselves, it's their feelings. Their feelings is God. And you're supposed to bow at the altar of their feelings. What about children? Bending the entire will of the family to the children to their whims, to their wants. Children are an idol in many places today. Idolatry is pervasive in our society. It may not always look like people bowing to the sun or people bowing to an idol made of stone, but our society is no more immune and our hearts are no more immune. And the question is, is there an idol in your life? The things that you wrap your life around, the things that you will reschedule your life for, the things that you will go out of your way for, the things that you devote your time and your energy and your thoughts and your desires toward. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where does your treasure go? What do you spend your money on? 
are inordinate amounts of your money being spent in some particular area? Follow the money. Do you have an idol? Follow your time. Do you have an idol? Follow all of your efforts. Do you have an idol? Paul exhorted the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a bit of a long passage here, 14 verses. The Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as some of them, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples or examples, that and they are written for our ad. Admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee. From idolatry. On the authority of God's word, the nation of Israel serves for us as an example of what not to do. An example that we should not lust after the things that the Lord has not given unto us. If God has not given it to you, it's because he doesn't want you to have it. If he's willing to let you have it, he'll give it to you. Don't lust over things that, are not, that, that the Lord hasn't given to you. As an example that we should not trust in things that have no power to save us or to deliver us. It's wonderful. We have a wonderful system in many ways today. Yes, it's not perfect, but, but, but our, our health system is, is, is a blessing from the Lord. Uh, our freedoms are a blessing from the Lord. But if this is where your trust lies... If your trust lies in doctors and in government and in systems, there's something wrong. Paul reminds us that there is no temptation. There is no desire. There is no compulsion of our flesh which God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, is not able to enable us to overcome. And so Paul commands us, flee from idolatry. Is there an idol in your life? Maybe it's a large one. Maybe it's a small one. Maybe something major. Maybe something minor. Is there something in your life which commands the time, the energy, the effort, and the loyalty that is due unto God? Are you stripping from God that which is His in order to give it to something that you think is yours? It's probably the other way around. It's not that you have it. It's that it has you. It's okay to have money. You don't want money to have you. It's okay for you to have things. You don't want things to have you. It's okay for you to have, to, to, to have uh, relationships, but you don't want relationships to have you. Is there idolatry in your life? Let's get it out. And he'll help you bear it. So we scoff at the futility of idolatry, but are we doing it too? Number two. Beware the heart of determined disobedience. When confronted with the realities of their own condition, rather than flee to the Lord in repentance, Judah said to the Lord, there is no hope. We will continue to do what we will do. We will continue in idolatry. We will continue to disobey. Those of you who remember your interactions with small children, I'm going through this right now, so of course it, it, it uh, floods to me when I hear determined disobedience. <laughs> if you've been in an authoritative position and you've had interaction with small children, you have seen a child determined to disobey. You have watched on their face as they set themselves. They set their jaw, they look at you, and they say, I am not, or they think, I am not going to do what you have just 
told me to do. You can see it written on them. I am determined to disobey you. I've seen my child be given every option to do right. Be reminded of the benefits of doing right. Be reminded of the problems that will come to them with doing wrong. And set his or her jaw and simply say, I will do wrong. My wife and I marvel at the determination which exists in the human heart to disobey, to rebel. And unfortunately, I see it all too often in my heart as well. I know what God wants me to do and I know the promises for doing it. I know the possible consequences of not doing it, but I'm going to have my way. I'm going to persist. I deny the power of God to enable me to overcome, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I deny the love of God calling me to blessings that the goodness of God leadeth me to repentance. And I determine in my heart that I will have it my way and I will stay stubborn and I will not repent and I will rest in my sin or hang on to my idol or withhold my forgiveness or remain in my resentment or persist in my rebellion because it's what I want. Because I've earned it. Because I deserve it. That person wronged me. I won't forgive them. That situation was terrible. I will maintain my resentments. Or maybe because I feel like it's too late. I've already made my decision. The damage is already done. Now I'm just going to live with it. And God is saying, no, repent. Be restored. I'll give you beauty for ashes. Nope, it's too late now. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to persist. To turn back now would be to admit my own error. Right? So I'm just going to stick to it. Stick to my guns. Make the best of it. As we sit here this evening... Is there an area of your life which you have stubbornly refused to yield to the Lord? God has sought you on it. The Spirit of God has pinpointed it. He said, that one, I want it. The Spirit has convicted you about it. God wants it. You know what you need to do, but you just, God, I want it. It's mine. I deserve it. You won't give it. Maybe for someone... It's the gospel. That the Spirit has been tugging on your heart. You're not in Christ. Maybe you've played the game. Maybe you're pretending. You know all the right answers. But you know, whenever the gospel is presented, you get very uncomfortable. The Spirit of God begins to convict your heart. You don't see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You don't, uh, you're not under conviction when you sin. You're not under chastening when you persist in sin. You don't love the brethren you don't love God's word. You don't obey his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. You see no fruit and you know you see no fruit. And you feel the tugging of the Lord on your heart unto salvation. But you say, no, what will people think of me if I give in? I'm just going to persist. I'm just going to keep up pretenses. I'm just going to pretend. And you know that you are yet in your sin. It's a terrible place to be. You do not want to stubbornly persist. Well, it's too late. Everyone thinks I'm a believer already. I just need to keep up pretenses. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't play that game. Get it right. Call upon the Lord. Humble yourself before Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Yield yourself. It's not worth it. Maybe it's a pet sin for someone. Something that you just enjoy. I just really enjoy it. I know it's wrong, but it's just, it's a part of my life now. It's a part of what I do. I don't even know what I'd replace it with. I've been doing it for so long. I, I just, I really enjoy it. It's just who I am. Don't persist. Yield it. Don't be determined to disobey. Maybe for another, it's the call of God upon your life. You felt the tug. You felt the tug toward some ministry. Whether it's just a, a, a simple ministry within the church. You say, but God, time. That would take time. I want time for me. That would take me time away. That would take some money. I don't want to give that money. That money could be used for something else. You're asking me to give it to that missionary. You're asking me to give it to that need. But God, it's my money. 
Maybe it's some ability. But God, I'm tired. I don't want to put out anymore. But God, I don't know what people will think of me if I start singing. What if I don't do well? What if they, what if, what if they, they judge me? And God is tugging on your heart and you say, no, I'm not going to do it. I refuse. Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe it's the mission field. Maybe it's the ministry. Would you yield your heart and put on a heart of determined obedience rather than disobedience, knowing this above all, that the Lord is in heaven waiting, aching to bless those that will in love and submission yield themselves unto the Lord. So we scoff at the futility of idolatry, but are we doing it too? Second, beware the heart of determined disobedience. Do you have it? Is it somewhere in you? I will not obey. I will persist. It's too late. I will continue in my rebellion. Number three, have we forsaken the good master, the very source of our beauty and our joy and our peace? This point springs off of the last. God asked Judah, does a maid forget her ornaments? Does a bride forget her attire? Have we forgotten our source of joy? Have we forgotten the root of our delight? Have we forgotten the goodness of the God that we serve? Sin is so deceptive. We hear its allures every day. We hear its lies. Like Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan telling her that God was holding them back from something, telling us that we should and could be more than what God has allowed us to be, that God is keeping, with, keeping us because he's afraid of us or something to that effect, that God is keeping us back from our fullest potential, calling us to lay down the garments of the king and to walk back out into the streets and resume the life of the pauper and making that life of the pauper sound so interesting. So romantic, right? Paul pleads with us through the text in Romans chapter 6, 16 to 23. Paul says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became servants of righteousness. Verse 19 is important. He says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to uh, iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have we forgotten that the wages of sin is death? Have we forgotten that we have been made free from sin? Have we forgotten our ornaments and our attire? Have we forgotten the very thing that makes the church of Christ beautiful? And that is Christ. The thing that makes the church of Christ beautiful is not our adornments physically. The church of Christ is not made beautiful by the stained glass in our windows. The church of Christ is not made beautiful by vaulted ceilings. The church of Christ is not made beautiful by perfectly constructed music or by impeccable timing in our service order. These are not the things that make the church of Christ beautiful. Christ is the beauty of the church. The beauty of the church is not its fellowship. The beauty of the Christian life is not morality and kindness. The beauty of the Christian life is not social uh, gospel type things. The beauty of the Christian is Christ. The beauty of the church is Christ. Have we left our beauty at home? Have we left the very thing that adorns us in beauty in the closet? 
with the same fervor that we once served sin, Romans chapter 16, or 6 verse 19 says, we ought to serve righteousness. Are you living in the beauty of your Lord? Or is your adornment something different? Are you seeking to adorn yourself in something else? In, the, in some beauty of the world, whether that's physical, whether that's uh, uh, some popular element of culture, whatever it might be, whether that's even morality and religion, are you seeking so strongly to adorn yourself in the trappings of your religious devotion that you have forgotten the Christ that inspires it? Are you adorned in the beauty of Christ? Are you serving righteousness with the same fervor that you once served sin? Who are you serving this evening? Number four. Number one, we scoff at the futility of idolatry, but are we doing it too? Number two, beware of the heart of determined disobedience. Number three, have we forsaken the good master, the very source of our beauty and joy and peace? Number four, only in the knowledge of our flaws can the Lord bring about solutions. God told the nation, I will plead with you because ye have yet said, I have not sinned. They were denying the knowledge of their own sinfulness, though it was placed right before their face. They were insisting upon their innocence in the face of obvious guilt. They were standing with the attire of a harlot, full uh, with blood all over them, saying, I have not fornicated, nor have I killed. One of the principles of uh, when, when you work with addicts in, in, in any setting is that there is no addict who will truly be able to be helped until he knows that he has a problem, right? If I don't think I have a problem, then I will never, ever seek for a solution because I don't need the solution. But the problem is that we don't want to know about our flaws. And we live in a society that says if you tell someone their flaws, you're hurting them, you're harming them, you're harming their self-esteem if you tell them that they're not doing something well. In fact, in some ways, the modern day church is set up to do everything possible to minimize people's knowledge of the fact that they're sinners. May I just encourage you not to think this way, not to be this way. I'm not exhorting you to air your dirty laundry to everyone and everything, about everything. I'm not exhorting you to walk around with, uh, you know, with, with, with weeping and gnashing of teeth about how vile and depraved and sinful you are. I'm not exhorting any of that. I'm certainly not telling you to be proud of your flaws or content with your flaws. But let's avoid the temptation to wrap, wrap ourselves in a false veneer of flawlessness. Let's avoid the insidious comfort of allowing our sin to remain in our blind spots and to function as if they don't exist. Let's not resent those who lovingly inform us of our sin who lovingly inform us of our flaws. Let's not shy away from our, from our willingness to lovingly inform someone else when they're doing something wrong. To lovingly go up to someone and say, have you considered that what you're doing may not please the Lord? If someone has a blind spot, by very definition, they will not know that, it's, that, that there's something there until someone tells them. Until someone that's not them sees their blind spot and says, excuse me, you have something in your blind spot. You need to get that taken care of. I was driving up to Canada uh, a little while ago and, and uh, the guy that I was driving with had those neat mirrors in his car where when a car was in his blind spot, a little light came on on his side view mirror so that he could see that there was, a, so that he'd know without even having to look that there's a car in his blind spot. Of course, you know, grow up learning that you need to check your blind spot before you change lanes or you do like my grandfather does and say, I just flip on my turn signal and start to veer and if someone honks, then I know there's someone there. But we don't want to be like that, right? That's not how we... We ought to function. If there's something in our blind spot, it's really helpful to know there's something in our blind spot or else we'll never know. And if you have a blind spot, by definition, you won't know until someone comes up to you and says, hey, I love you, but you've got a problem. Don't resent people when they come up and tell you that you have a blind spot. It doesn't feel good. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. It's no fun. But we all need it. 
Do you have someone who you can trust enough to come to you that loves you enough to say, look, you're doing something wrong? Don't resent those who would do so. If someone has food in their face, they'll not know it until someone tells them, right? Have you ever been in a situation where you eat and then like an hour later someone tells you you have food on your face and you've interacted with 15 people and not one of them had the decency to tell you to wipe the food off of your face? And though it's embarrassing that somebody had to tell you to wipe food off your face, it's more embarrassing to think about all the people that you interacted with that you had food on your face but they didn't tell you you had food on your face, right? It would have been so much better if that first person would have just said, hey, I don't want to make you feel bad, but you got food on your face. Would you just, and, and then you can do whatever you want with the food, right? Then at least you know. But we don't know what we don't know until someone tells us what we don't know. It might be uncomfortable, but they will thank you for it if you tell them they have food on their face. Or maybe they'll deny it, at which point it's their problem, right? I don't have food on my face. What are you talking about? And then they just go around with food on their face. It's fine. So James chapter 5, verse 16 tells us this. Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There is power in acknowledging our faults. Because acknowledging them means I am, at least see them, and that's the first step toward, through the Lord's power, defeating them, overcoming them. God is noticeably frustrated with Judah in Jeremiah 2. And a part of the frustration is that for all the times that God had told them they were doing wrong, they simply didn't believe him. Let us not be that way. One more point. First, do we scoff at, we scoff at the futility of idolatry, but are we doing it too? Second, beware the heart of determined disobedience. Third, have we forsaken the good master, the very source of our beauty and joy and peace? Fourth, only in the knowledge of our flaws can the Lord bring about solutions. And then finally, let me ask you this question. Where is your confidence and security? God's final exhortation in this passage was to remind Judah that their confidence in the nations around them would not prosper. It was unfounded confidence. They had confidence in something that they should not have confidence in. My father and I redid our steps this week. And as we were taking out, we had, we had to, to, to reduce the, the width of our stringers uh, that, that support the steps. And as we were taking those stringers apart, I realized that we were being somewhat foolhardy to put our confidence in those stringers. We were putting our confidence in something that probably did not deserve as much confidence as we had in them because they were old and they were brittle and they were cracked all over the place. And I'd shimmed them before and it was kind of just a mess. And yet, how often do we place our confidence in things that are old and that are brittle and that really have very little going for them? And we're just hoping that it doesn't collapse underneath us. The question for us this evening is, where have we placed our confidence? Have we placed it in the security of the one who has never failed? Or are we just kind of bargaining in the same way that, that the world around us bargains? And they take their chances with all of their systems and their safety nets and all of those things that they have and they take their chances and they hope it works out. It's not a problem to have money, but is your confidence and security in money? It's not a problem to have safety nets, but is your confidence and security in, in safety nets? It's not a problem to be smart. It's not a problem to be good looking, but is your confidence and your security in these things? It's not a problem to be skilled and capable, but is your confidence and your security in your capabilities? Pastor, how can I know? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. Number one, how would you respond if this was taken away? So you've always pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. When you've needed money, you've gone out and you've gotten a job. If you needed more money, you've gone out and you've gotten a better job. You've always been able to trust in your physical capabilities or your mental capabilities to do what you needed to do when you needed to do it. What happens if tomorrow you go lame? What happens if tomorrow your mental capacity is hindered in some form or fashion? Would it break you? Would it break you? Would it cause you, send you into a fit of anxiety and despair? If it would break you, then your confidence is in the wrong place. There's nothing in this life for which you're guaranteed. Your health can be gone tomorrow. 
Your money could be gone tomorrow. Your financial security gone tomorrow. Would it break you if you lost your health tomorrow? Would it break you if you lost your financial security tomorrow? Would that cause you to despair? Well, then your confidence is probably in the wrong place. Is there anything on this earth which, if it crumbled tomorrow, you would crumble with it? You've misplaced your confidence and security. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, you're probably familiar, verses 3 through 7, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He says, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Is this you this evening? I'm not saying you don't have any capacities. Paul says, I have a lot of capabilities. I have a lot of things going for me. He said, as far as confidences of the flesh, I had a lot of things I could rest in. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel. I was a Pharisee as touching the law, concerning zeal, and I was persecuting the church, touching the righteousness of the law. I was blameless. I had my pedigree. I had all of these things going for me. He said, but then I came to Christ and I realized that none of it was worth having any confidence in. Though I could have confidence in the flesh, the flesh is not worth having confidence in. My confidence cannot lie in anything material. And if it does, you're standing on a movable foundation. Where does your confidence lie this evening? Whatever gains you might have, are they on the altar? It doesn't mean you have to get rid of them. It doesn't mean I have to ignore my strength or get rid of all my money or make myself ugly or whatever it might be. It doesn't mean I have to do that. But what it means is I don't see that as the end-all, be-all. My confidence, my security, my strength. We worship God in spirit. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in the flesh. These are the marks of a believer. Is that the marks of your life? And if it's not, what is in that place? What's in that place if Christ is not there? Where's your confidence? Where's your security? If Christ is not it, what is it? And whatever that is, by the way, that's an idol. You've, you've pinpointed it. Now it's time to flee from it. Flee from idolatry. Five points this evening drawn from the examples of the nation of Israel, from their failings. We scoff at the futility of idolatry, but are we doing it too? Beware of, a of the heart of determined obedience, disobedience. Have we forsaken the good master, the very source of our beauty and our joy and our peace? Only in the Lord, oh, excuse me, only in the knowledge of our flaws can the Lord bring about solutions. And then finally, that question, where is your confidence and security? These were Israel's failings. May they not be our failings as well. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.